0: Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 23 for the next two weeks. In our last several weeks in Matthew, we've attempted to mine the depths of Peter's great confession and Jesus' affirming response to that confession. Let's briefly have a context before we move forward. In verse 13, we see Jesus and his band of disciples entering Caesarea Philippi. This city, Caesarea Philippi, was named after the two most powerful men in Jewish life at the time Caesarea, named after Caesar, the Roman Caesar who had adopted the title of the Son of God, and Philippi uh, after the reigning Jewish tetrarch over the area that they were in. And as they entered the city, Jesus asked them who they believed he was and and Peter popped up without hesitation and said that you are the Christ, verse 16, the Son of the living God. The first title, the Christ, the Messiah... What was the Genesis 49.10 prophesied figure to whom the ruler's staff belonged. It had departed from the tribe of Judah with these illegitimate Herodian rulers, but the Christ would reestablish the throne of David, displacing Philip and all the Herodians who had illegitimately taken the throne. The second title, the Son of the Living God, was even more bold. Peter was saying that Jesus truly had the kind of universal sovereignty over the whole world that the Roman Caesars only claimed to have. And on top of that, there was another little jab thrown in there by Peter. King Jesus was the son of the living God, unlike Caesar Augustus, who was the son of the divine Julius, who was himself dead, right? Talk about boldness. But Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for his bold answer. Far from it. In verses 17-19, through Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. Yes, Peter, you're right about who I am. God has opened your eyes to my identity. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Let me tell you what you're going to do. What I'm going to do with you. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The synagogue or the gathering of the Jews was a place devoted to the study of the law. They believed that through this synagogue they were going to produce the culture that was going to lead to the revival of the messiah the arrival of the Messiah and the blessing of the kingdom. But no, they were wrong. No, that's my church, my ecclesia, my assembly that I'm going to build on you as the foundation. Peter and the other disciples are the foundation and the outcome will be that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. What they aren't able to do, you will do. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant will, be, will belong to this church that I'm building and all the nations will be blessed in me through the building of my church and you will possess the gates of your enemies. And how would that take place? Well, through the church's building culture through the same sort of delineation that the Pharisees were attempting to do in the synagogue. Verse 19, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The Pharisees let people in the synagogue and put people out based off of their twisted tradition of the elders. They bound consciences where consciences should have been free and they loosed people from obligations that they should have been bound to. But Jesus would give the keys to the kingdom and this authority to bind and to loose to his church, to his ecclesia, taking it away from the established authorities of the synagogue. And the church would get it right. They'd let in the right-hearted people People who reflected these beatitudes that were starting off the basis of blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually destitute, those that knew they needed grace. And they would bind and loose in true righteousness what was bound or loosed in heaven. This new ecclesia that Jesus would build would create the kind of culture that would transform the nations and the governments of the world into obedience to Christ and bring blessings on everybody. Guys, that excites me, don't it, y'all? I've heard those verses my whole life, and I still get excited when I read them, don't y'all? Can you imagine how excited the disciples were when they're hearing this for the first time? They're understanding it through the lens I just gave you. you know, We're having to try to put ourselves 2,000 years ago. This is the air they breathe. They're getting what's being said immediately. And no doubt they were David province charged the gates of hell with a water pistol kind of excited, Right? Easy to picture Simon the Zealot saying, let's do this, right? you know. Or, or Matthew, let's get this party started. But can't you just imagine Peter making sure that his sword is ready at his side for any Malchus that might come his way? They're ready to establish the kingdom. But now this exciting narrative takes an unexpected turn in verses 20 through 23. And that's where we'll pick up for this morning. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. This morning we're going to look at three unexpected plot twists in these short four verses. And for once, my sermon is very PC. Privacy is commanded. PC, right? Priesthood is coming. And Peter is corrected. I did that for y'all. So privacy commanded in verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What a shocker this one had to be, right? This warned word, uh, diastello, it means to order, to command, to sternly admonish that they should tell nobody that he was the Christ. Peter had just declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't you think that that'd be something that everybody kind of needed to know if Jesus was going to establish his kingdom? And basically no one had gotten the picture up to this point. Remember right before Peter's great confession, who the crowds thought that Jesus was? He first, before he said, who do you say that I am? He asked the crowds, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said that some say you were John the Baptist, or others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets... The first three of those misconceptions of Jesus' identity have that were all forerunners of Christ that you would have learned about in the Old Testament or in the rabbinical writings that kind of pictured them as forerunners that would come back before the Christ would come. And the last more general speculation was that God was speaking prophetically through men like John the Baptist and Jesus again in this pre-Messianic age and the Messiah was soon to come. But according to the Twelve. The number of people who actually recognized Jesus as the Christ was too small to even mention. Nobody's seeing him through that lens. Nobody's thinking that's who he is. How's Jesus going to overthrow Rome if they don't correct the masses' understanding of who Jesus is? How's he going to claim the ruler's staff that rightly belonged to him from the Herodians? How is he going to build his church or his assembly? How would they take the very gates of hell if they didn't tell anybody who he was? Secrecy is not the way of the average, ordinary, everyday coup, is it? It's not usually how they happen. When an aspiring rival leader wants to overthrow an existing power structure, they typically start an uprising. And no doubt that's what the disciples were thinking. Let's get all the dissatisfied groups behind us who have all these overlapping visions. It's easy to get fed up deplorables involved in a coup, isn't it? Find whatever common ground you can and start a populist uprising. One doesn't necessarily need allies to do something like that. Cold belligerence will be just fine. And it would have been easy to stir up the crowds to get them to follow. Remember the free food crowd. It's always around, isn't it? And it was around in Jesus' day too. Remember what happened right after Jesus fed the 5,000? In John 6, 14 through 15, Therefore, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had performed, they said, Truly this is the prophet who has come into the world. They actually thought... During this little window of time, they thought, this is the prophet, this is the, this is the Christ. And Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. I think he could have got them stirred up, don't you? If he wanted to. But he withdrew to the mountains by himself alone. He could have pandered to the crowd un- undoubtedly and had their support. You not only have the free food crowd, you'll also always have the no-tax crowd, won't you? People that don't want to pay any taxes. You can always find those guys. They existed at this time too. Acts 5, 37, Judas of Galilee in the days of taxing drew many people away from him, but he also perished and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. There, was a lot of, there were a lot of Jewish zealots who resented being taxed by the Romans and they had little uprisings here and there and everywhere. You think you could have got the zealots on board of, Hey, get on, we'll overthrow all this stuff and we'll set this stuff right and you won't have to pay taxes anymore. You could have got the free food crowd. Could have got the no-tax crowd. He also could have gotten the believing scribes, Pharisees, and rulers, I think. There were actually many of these, uh, and they were influential. First, in John 3, 1 through 2, we have one of them come. You remember that story where a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, said, this man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, address Jesus as a teacher. We know you have come from God as a teacher. Who knows we? He's not coming just on his own initiative. He's... A part of a delegation of rulers or Pharisees who believe that Jesus is a teacher who has come from God because nobody can do these signs that he's doing except for God be with him. He's basically begging to be persuaded. But Jesus never even identifies himself as the Christ during this opportunistic conversation. He only rebukes his understanding of the kingdom altogether and tells him he's he's in danger of not even entering it unless he's born again. And there were more. John twelve forty two. Many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Do you think that miracle-working Jesus could have carried their favor if that would have been his goal? Convinced them of this whole building a new assembly that would replace the synagogue thing? Promised them the gates of their enemies in exchange for their support? Do you think that the free food crowd, the no-tax zealot crowd, and the many rulers and Pharisees could have formed an ever-growing movement? But Jesus commands them not to tell anyone who he is. What gives? Why no coup? Well... Because the Christ was not just the king who would reclaim the ruler's staff and the prophet who would bring about the obedience of all the peoples. He was also the greater fulfillment of 2 Samuel seven twelve through 13 He was a greater fulfillment of that than Solomon. When your days are complete... God told David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build my house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon was a fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. He built the temple, but did his kingdom last forever? His temple didn't even last forever, did it? And neither would... Uh, And the kingdom was taken away. The kingship was lost. And but Jesus, as the greater Son of David, would establish a new everlasting dwelling place of God. He would raise up a new uh, temple, and he would be set on the throne forever. Do you remember why that David couldn't even build the temple himself? You remember why? You remember that? First Chronicles twenty eight. Two through three, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent house for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and you have shed blood. That couldn't be the way that Jesus became the Messiah. He couldn't unite the offices of priest and king and be that kind of king. He could not come to the throne that way and be the promised Messiah. It was an impossibility. The Messiah was not to ascend to his throne like the typical king as a man of war. But how did he come riding into Jerusalem? He came riding, Matthew 21, 4 through 5, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt and the foal of a beast of burden. That's the way people came when kings rode in peace, not when they were coming into war. He came to establish peace. The disciples certainly didn't understand that. We know how they wanted to deal with their dissidents, don't we? Remember when the Samaritans wouldn't believe on them and they asked Jesus, James and John said, Hey, give, do you want us to call fire down out of heaven and kill all these Samaritans? And Jesus says, You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy life, but to save it. The unexpected nature of this command and privacy was doubly true of the next PC that we have, this priesthood coming. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Let's look at some noteworthy words and phrases in this text. Uh, first, from this time. Matthew uses this phrase of transition in his go- as a phrase of transition in his gospel. We've seen it once already in Matthew 4, 17. From that time when John was arrested, John had been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. When he was arrested, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw what that looked like in Matthew four twenty three. He was going through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness amongst the people. You see this theme over and over again. The uh, teaching in their synagogues, that's a, prof- a prophetic ministry. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that's his kingly ministry. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness amongst the people, pointing to his reversing the curse as the pri- priest who could forgive sins. You see that over and over again. In mark's, in Matthew four seventeen, it marks the beginning of the Lord's public ministry to Israel. He focused on teaching the religious leaders in the synagogues, announcing the kingdom, proving his identity by doing these miraculous works that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And what was the outcome? Well, some entertained the idea that Jesus was the Messiah for a while. But by this time, many had abandoned that idea because he wasn't doing it the way that he wanted them to. You know people that follow Christ until he doesn't do things the way that they want them to? We've got to be very careful and not be those kinds of fickle disciples. We've got to be the though-you-slay-me kinds of disciples, don't we? But now you see another from that time. Now that the disciples have shown that they've gotten the point, now that they've shown that they are convinced of his identity of Christ, Matthew uses this from this time to mark the beginning of his private ministry to the 12. The first phase was a public primarily public with some occasional private instruction to the disciples. And this second phase is primarily private with some occasional public instruction. He's being more intimate with his disciples. The Galilean ministry has reached its climax and things are headed toward the cross. The the declaration that he's the Messiah in 616 leads him to immediately clarify his messianic mission and that is from that time to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. We see that again in Matthew seventeen twenty-two through 23. Jesus reiterates that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer at the hands of the elders, be killed and raised again. And then on 20, 18 and 19, he's redundantly teaching them, making sure that they don't misunderstand his mission. His mission is the cross. They must understand the paradoxical and painful nature of his mission. We hear little now of the crowds or of public teaching going forward in the book of Matthew. Miracles have dominated the narrative, but we actually only see two more miracles in this whole section. An exorcism in chapter 17 and then the healing of a blind man in chapter 20. Instead, Jesus' attention is focused on teaching the disciples, trying to instill in them the new, radically different values of the kingdom of heaven and to prepare them for what lies ahead in Jerusalem. But note that from this time, he began to show. And I want to point this out. He began to show them. It doesn't say tell them, does it? It says he began to show them, to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Show them how. Show them where. Guys, clearly this is referring to showing them from the Scriptures. This is, this is exactly what the Old Testament said was going to happen. And he's explaining to them that my ministry, This, yes, I'm the king. I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. Yes, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom. But the way this thing's going down is through Jerusalem, through me suffering, through me being rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, through me being killed and through me being raised from the dead. We see the same thing in Luke 24:44 through 47 after Jesus has raised from the dead. He said Jesus says, "These are many words which I spoke these are many words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled." And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day for the repentance and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. He showed them that through the scriptures. Guys, we don't unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is how we know who Christ was supposed to be and how we know he fulfilled the messianic expectation and how we know the whole Bible is true. It's not just, I tried it and it worked for me. It's that this story is impossible to be made up. It was prophesied and Jesus fulfilled it to the T. He convinced the disciples during their lifetime and they understood after the resurrection. But he's trying to explain it to them starting here at chapter 16 going forward throughout the gospel. That's his primary mission is to make sure his disciples get this. That he showed them that he must. Look at that word. It means to, he's tied to it. He's bound to it. That, that it is what is proper and that it is unavoidably necessary. These events were not optional. But they were a divine imperative, an absolute necessity. God had no backup or alternate plan. This wasn't plan A. This was exactly what God had intended to do before the foundation of the earth. This must must here came thundering out of eternity. It was the essential, unalterable plan of God set in motion before the foundation of the world, to quote John MacArthur. We also see this in Luke twenty four, twenty five 25-27, that same Emmaus Road encounter after Jesus had risen from the dead where he says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? That the suffering had to come first... And then he would enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Even after all this, we know that Peter doesn't get it. We know here he rebukes Jesus and Jesus calls him Satan, which we'll focus more on next week. But even when when Jesus is being arrested, what does Peter do? Do you remember? Peter gets out his sword... Cuts off Malchus's ear trying to save Jesus from what must happen, what had to happen. And Jesus reaches down, puts Malchus's ear back on and says, Put your sword into your sheath, Peter. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? The cross was the point of the ministry. This was exactly what had to happen to establish the kingdom of God. It would not be established through the sword. It would be established through the cross. Guys, nothing's changed. His kingdom will still not be established through the sword. It will be established through the cross. Yes, we're going to go and we're going to take dominion and we're going to transform the world with a message. And then people operating in their spheres of sovereignty, however God has ordained that they do so, and not overstepping to charge and conquer nations. Of course not. But to disciple nations. It's always been the plan. Jesus wasn't having his life taken from him. He was laying it down. So now what must he do? He must go to Jerusalem. This first must was for him to go to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's a hotbed of opposition for Jesus. After Jesus had showed up, the Galilean scribes and Pharisees by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in their synagogue. Remember that? 12.14 It says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him of how they might destroy him. That's when they started. They're going to, that's when they got the idea, we're going to kill him. And Part of that conspiracy was to go up the ladder to the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem to get their help. It's possible, if not likely, that these Galilean scribes and Pharisees went to the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council in Jerusalem, to report that Jesus was teaching against their tradition of the elders and stirring up all the people that they were following Him and believing on Him to get these Pharisees and scribes who loved the praises of men all stirred up and upset about it. And they came down, look at in Matthew 15, 1 through 2, some of the Pharisees and scribes came down from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. But Jesus wasn't intimidated by their position, by their credentials, or their ecclesiastical clout. All of that just caused Jesus to treat them with even more severity. And he said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you yourself? He, he repeats it. He wants to make sure they feel the full weight of his authority. And by the end of it, Jesus has showed them exactly how damnable their tradition was. He did so after calling the crowds over to watch. Remember that in chapter 15? He has, after they asked the crowd the question in private about why don't your disciples wash their hands, he calls the crowd over and answers it to their face to show them up. Do you think they like that? <laughs> No, And after that, it was kind of a little dangerous for Jesus to even be in those Jewish areas. And remember, he, for the last little while, he's been out of Jewish areas. He withdrew and he went to Tyre and Sidon. He went to the Decapolis. He went to these Gentile areas because it wasn't his time to die yet. It wasn't his time to die how? What did I say? Yet. Jesus had shown the disciples that the Gentiles were more receptive to his ministry than the Jews had been. He had continued doing these miracles, and now they understand who he is, and he lets them know, okay, no more running around in Gentile areas. We're not, we're not hanging out in Tyre and Sidon. We're not hanging out with, in places where we might be safe. I must go to Jerusalem where everybody hates me, And I must suffer many things. Jesus was no limp-wristed effeminate pansy man, was he? He wasn't scared of his mission that God had given him to do. He knew his mission and he intended to fulfill it. He knew that Isaiah 53, 5-6, through which no doubt he told the disciples when they was telling them that he must suffer, he had read it to them, that the Messiah would be pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities, that the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging or his wounds we are to be healed, that we all like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon this Messiah and that's me guys no doubt he quoted that he had to suffer our sins demanded it I love Mark's telling of the trip to Jerusalem. In Mark ten, thirty-two 32-34, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. They knew what a hotbed it was for persecution. They knew that death could await them when they got to Jerusalem. But Jesus wasn't shirking it. They're all on the way and he's walking ahead of them like a kid on the way to a candy store or something. Because this is the Father's plan for me. He knows I've got to go to Jerusalem. That I've got to suffer. And then he took the twelve aside there in this Mark account and began to tell them again what was going to happen, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later... He'll rise again. And at whose hands does it say he'll suffer from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes? These men represented the Jewish nation as a whole. They were representative of the ecclesia, the assembly of the people of God at that time. These men who oversaw the synagogues, they oversaw the temple ministry, they oversaw the courts of law of Israel, and they saw themselves as the true people of God, and they bound in loose consciences, and they exercised the keys by putting people out of the synagogue. They would be the ones that would reject Jesus. They would cast Him out. Remember that they had decided that anyone who even confessed Jesus could be put out of the synagogue. But they were going to go one step farther and seek the sword of the Roman government in the form of crucifixion in Jesus' case. They were going to have him killed. They couldn't do that on their own. They had to go up the ladder, didn't they? To get, They weren't just satisfied getting him out of the synagogues, removing him from the Jewish spaces. They wanted him killed. And that's the next thing it says here, isn't it? That he would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Also, you return back to Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet with a rich man at his death. This Greek word for be killed, behind killed, it wasn't used for legal executions. In this context, the meaning is that of Murder. Jesus was not legally tried and proved guilty of any wrongdoing, but was sentenced to death on false, vindictive charges of these Jewish leaders who were determined to get rid of him at any cost. But it was all in God's plan that the hand of man, that at the hand of man, Jesus was to be murdered. Later, we'll see Jesus quoting Psalm 118, 22 to explain what has happened. Did you never read in the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected? became the chief cornerstone that it would be judgment on those chief priests those scribes those elders that had that had wrongly executed him and that that They had rejected him and he would be the cornerstone of a new people that would replace them. But it had to happen first that he was rejected even to the point of death before the new people could be established, before the new kingdom could arise, before they could be a church to replace the synagogue and the temple of the people of God to replace the actual temple in Jerusalem. Before they could replace the throne of the Herods with the throne at the right hand of the throne of God in King Jesus All this had to happen, obviously, through death. Obviously, though, this death would not be the end, right? Because on the third day, he would rise again. Jesus even told them how long he'd stay dead, didn't he? On the third day. He's like he likely quoted Hosea six two, where Israel corporately expresses its hope that on the third day God will raise us up that we might live before him. He saw himself as the true Israel of God and that I will on the third day be raised up that I might live before God, actually be in His presence. Undoubtedly, He told them that. That's actually... You You think it's talking about Israel in general? It's talking about me. I am Israel in general, and only those that are grafted into me are the true Israel of God. Undoubtedly, He's told them that. Those that trust in me are the new Ecclesia. But I have to wait until I'm killed. I have to be three days, then live before God in His presence. We know from Matthew 12, 39 through 40 that He had appointed to the three days where Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale and that the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's always referring back, showing Himself to the disciples, showing them that it has to happen like this. This whole text testifies to the universally understood concept of the Messiah uniting the offices of prophet and priest and reigning over them as the final prophet. So he's going to be the prophet, priest, and the king. Everybody got that. They got it because it's so clear in Zechariah 6, 12 through 15. Y'all have your turn there. I've not had to turn anywhere today. I'm going to make you turn. can't be lazy all morning. Zechariah 6, 12 through 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts Behold, a man whose name is Branch. This word is Nezer, by the way. Nazareth, he shall be called a Nazarene. That's where the word came from, the city of the branch. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne. The priesthood and the king and the kingship had always been separate, but in the Messiah, there would be a priest who would be on the throne, uniting the offices, and the council of peace would be between the two offices. Now, the crown will be a reminder in the temple of the Lord. To Helam, to Bajja. Jedediah and Hinn, the sons of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. But there was confusion. Although everybody understood that the Messiah, when he came, would unite these offices, there was confusion of how that would actually go down. The Pharisees believed it. They didn't didn't understand how it happened. The Pharisees' understanding of this was that they would turn the hearts of the people back to the law of Moses and that once they built the culture that the Messiah king would come and reign over them and grant authority and be granted authority over the temple as the priest on his throne. So they they would prophetically teach the law, the Messiah would respond, come back and agree with them, reside over them as the final prophet, be established as king, and then given access to priesthood. So they looked at it as prophet, king, priest. That was the logical order. And it's not, it's not hard to understand how they got to that opinion. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, the reason they thought they went into exile to begin with was right before the giving of the law, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. They're saying, hey, where we failed, the reason we started a kingdom, but it was taken away from us, was we didn't obey the law, so if we really bear down and we get it right, then the promises that were in the law, the promises of Abraham, will finally be ours. It's up to us. Let's teach it rightly. The Messiah will come, rule over us, and then we'll have our king-priest. You see how they got there, right? The disciples thought that Jesus had arrived as the Messiah king and that he was correcting the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the law as the prophet like Moses who would be raised up from the people, like it says in Deuteronomy 18... They would supplant the synagogue system by exercising the keys and binding and loosing better than the Pharisees and scribes. And ultimately, Jesus would take the actual throne and then be granted access over the temple. So they looked at it as, Jesus is the king, he's arrived. He's arrived with his, with, and he's king no matter what. He's replacing their false interpretations as the prophet and then once we change the culture, he'll be given access to the temple and he'll be the priest. So they looked at it as king, prophet, priest. And it's easy to understand how they got there. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is given his coronation on, uh, address, his, or his inauguration address that he's the promised Messiah, kind of given that idea... In 5.17 he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and... but whoever keeps and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So you see, you see that order, don't you? And that's also kind of the order that we just saw in the narrative that of, G, of Peter professing Jesus as the Christ and then, what, and, G, and then Jesus' response to Peter's confession. Look with me back in our text at Matthew 16, 16-19. In answer to the question, who do do you say that I, the son of man, am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, pointing to him as the king. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So they see, well, you are the king, and now you are correcting their interpretation of the law, and you're going to use us as part of your prophetic ministry to actually create the culture, and then once we've done it, You'll be given access to the temple. You see that? So that their logical progression is king, prophet, priest. But what does Jesus say is actually going to happen? Jesus himself will be the one who perfectly obeys God's law as modeled for as a model for the people. He would perfectly keep it. It's not that he would create a culture where they would would perfectly teach it. No. First he would be the one that perfectly kept the law and offered himself as a sinless blemishless Lamb of God for the sins of the whole world. God would respond to this sinless Lamb of God and raise him from the dead declaring him to be both Lord and Christ and that Jesus would ascend to heaven and give the church the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that they would rightly then use the keys, rightly binding loose, and disciple the nations. Jesus said, no, it's going to be, I'm first going to be the priest. And God's going to respond to my perfect offering that I died for the sins of the people and perfectly kept the law by offering myself as the perfect act of love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man has laid down his life for his friends. That the whole law is fulfilled in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. In this priestly act itself, I'll perfectly obey the law and God will honor that, recognize that, and raise me from the dead and declare me to be the Son of God and then I'll give the church the keys and they can do this prophetic ministry to disciple the nations. And that's what you see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Start looking for it. Romans 1 5, 1 through 5 Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. What took place first? He died and was raised from the dead and then he was declared to be the Son of God with power by that resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. You see that order? He offers himself as a sacrifice. God raises him from the dead. He's declared to be the Son of God with power. The disciples didn't need to go tell everybody he's the Christ so they could overthrow the government. No, Jesus was going to be declared to be the Son of God by finally keeping the law perfectly, paying for our sin debt, and then calling a people to himself through the ministry of the gospel and indwelling them with the Spirit, making a fearless people who would understand the kingdom ethic to die to yourself for the good of others. And that glory would await later. That's what had to happen. He had to be the lamb to become the lion of the tribe of Judah who would bring about the obedience of the people. And you find it again and again. Philippians 2, 8-9 through that being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, his priestly ministry. For this reason God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee would bow of those on heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He'd be highly exalted to be the king after his Priestly ministry, and then every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. It would be priest, it would be king, and then this prophetic ministry working through the churches as they disciple the nations. Had to be that order because we couldn't understand it until we saw Jesus do it. We'd think we have to do it like Peter with a sword in our hand cutting off Malchus's ear until we saw Jesus do it. No, we just, we just hold to our convictions and we never compromise. And we trust God through it all. And sometimes suffering will come, but we aren't cowered by those sufferings. And we continue in obedience and we proclaim the truth and God establishes His church through a faithful people based on the testimony of the gospel itself. You see it again in Acts 2, 29 through 36, Brethren, I may confidently say to you, concerning the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb's with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and that he would neither abandon that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh undergo decay. This Jesus God raised up, to whom we are all witnesses. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God Do you see it? David wasn't the king, but there would be a Christ who would be raised from the dead and after he would raised, he would be exalted to the right hand of God as the Messiah King, as the Son of God with power, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit who he has poured forth, which you both now see and hear. This is at the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord has said to my Lord, Sit ye here at my right hand until I make your enemies a a footstool for your feet. Now we're doing the prophetic ministry of discipling the nations and we're going to get it done. And he's going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God until we have. Priest, king, prophetic ministry. We now understand we have the keys to the kingdom. We can bind and loose. And as we create culture, we await the arrival of King Jesus. But we can't shirk that duty, brothers and sisters. We've got to stand on it. We've got to be willing to suffer. We've got to be willing to go through the hardship. We've got to be willing to stand against the synagogues and the the, the temples of our day, the culture-building influences of our day, and say no and not try to be a faithful presence in what they're doing, but be willing to be kicked out of what they're doing and establish what is actually in line with God's Word itself with no compromise, even if they hate us for it. We've got to follow the way of our Savior. Jesus charted, the, charted it as a pioneer of our faith. And he has sanctified the way of suffering for the people of God. And that through that path of faithful suffering, glory will come. We see it over and over again. You'll you find it more. I wanted to do this for like an hour and I'm not going to, but there's more of these. It's so funny. When you find one of these little threads and you pull it, you start looking for it and you're like, wow, God said this over and over and over and over again. It becomes one of these little hermeneutical sort of lenses. You look for it you see it everywhere. And it is. It's there. It's everywhere. The keys to the kingdom and this authority to bind and loose hadn't been given yet. Remember what we've been preaching, what he told Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say I have given you or I'm giving you these right now. It was a future promise. And he's telling them, but before that happens, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And be killed and on the third day rise again. And then the church would wait until they were clothed with power from on high so they could begin the discipling of the nations. Guys, do you know we still have that same Holy Spirit? I don't know why we don't act like it anymore, but we do. And we see here, I'm going to touch it, but I'm not going to linger on it. We see Peter corrected this last irony. First irony was you wouldn't expect him to say, don't tell anybody, right? Privacy commanded. The priesthood communicated, or coming. And now Peter corrected. The The very man who Jesus said, upon this rock... To whom he said, upon this rock I will build my church. The one that he said that I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. He, he, this man, Peter, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Guys, just to let you know, if you're rebuking Jesus, you're doing something wrong. You've, you've messed up somewhere when you're rebuking Jesus. You say, well, how can I rebuke Jesus? Every day you complain. Every day you murmur. Every day that you refuse to do what he's called you to because you've got better sense than he does. Every little compromise you make to keep your positions and keep your little places in in your little synagogues of this earth. Every single time you're saying, not so, Lord, I don't need to suffer. That's not the path to glory. Every single time you're, you're like, Peter, what a fool you are to take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke Jesus says, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, Lord. Are we not like that? Argue with God and still call Him Lord? That's what He does right here, isn't it? God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's, it, for, for Him, it's not just, it shouldn't happen. It's unthinkable. Absolutely. What you've just said to us? No. Absolutely not, Jesus. That can't be the way. We not feel that way sometimes. That can't be the way. Cost, suffering, heartache, loss, rejection from the world, having to come out and do things the harder way. Isn't it just easy to just go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing? God forbid it, Lord. It wasn't just for Jesus. Look look forward as where this is going in the coming weeks. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It wasn't just Jesus that would go this path of suffering. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake, he will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with the angels and will recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there's some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. God forbid it, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And, he, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Let me, let me encourage something in our binding and loosing that, we, that we've got to realize. Sometimes, really, people that are really God's people can say things that are truly satanic. Like, really be wrong. Does that mean they're not God's people? Like, Jesus rebukes him. And now, Jesus didn't beat around the bush, did he? He didn't say, Hey, Peter, I think you're a little off base here. No, he, he hit it head on. But there was grace still, wasn't there? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, a scandal on. That's the word. For you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. We're going to really flesh that out next week. But brothers and sisters, let us realize the path to glory is through the path of suffering, in the path of faithfulness, that we will go forward. Now, that's, as long as, as we are in an age where sin still is, and I, guys, I think you can look around and see that it still is, as we stand against it, the world will hate us for it. Be a standing people who know that if Jesus' path was a path through suffering and death to glory, that if we want to get to glory, we've got to go the same way. Don't compromise. Trust that Jesus is our priest first. He's atoned for our sins. He's been ascended to the right hand of God. He's sovereign over everything that happens. And He is working through us by His Spirit to preach the truth and stand on it without shirking, without compromising, to, to be the ones that do the binding and the loosing on the earth, to not be ashamed to call sin, sin, and righteousness, righteousness. And if we must suffer like he suffered, the end is glory in life for us anyway. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for this encouragement from Your Word. Lord, the paradoxical truths of Scripture, Lord, help us to hold to them. Make us a faithful and uh, courageous people. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Make us bold and make us bold because we believe the gospel. We see that You were faithful to Your Son and You will be faithful to those that are indwelled, that are one with Your Son, that are united to Him by faith. God, please use us to transform this world to do what the Pharisees failed to do, to Christianize our surroundings, to make an impact, not to just wait, but to actually go and be obedient and trust that you will work mightily through your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.